The case information provided during this program includes details of violent criminal acts and may upset, shock, and offend some listeners. Any named suspects should be considered innocent unless proven guilty in a court of law. Ryan Riddle and Mark Crossy grew up around small towns in central Illinois where murders rarely happen. They met in college and became the very best of friends. One winter night, they experienced unexpected and overwhelming violence inside Mark Crossy's home, which cost them both their lives. Unbelievably, Ryan Riddle had been the victim of a home invasion at his farmhouse just seven months before. Their family and friends are crying out for answers on this unsolved double murder that happened 13 years ago. There is a $25,000 reward for the arrest and conviction of those who killed Ryan Riddle and Mark Crossy. This is True Crime Takedown, and I'm your host, Troy Daniels. Towards the end of this podcast, we will be releasing an important update concerning the investigation of this unsolved double murder. The information we will be providing was confirmed by us from several sources and is original reporting from this podcast. This Midwest murder series from True Crime Takedown covers many stunning crimes that cause pain to victims and their families from Chicago to throughout central Illinois. Midwest Murders Episode 1 covers the Chicago murder of Arnie Graves. We interviewed retired Chicago detective Tim Nolan, who told us the murder scene was staged to make it look like Arnie had been killed by a satanic ritual serial killer. In his 30 years of being an investigator, Detective Nolan had never seen anything like this before. After he was killed, it is believed Arnie's car was stolen and driven two hours south on Interstate 57. Midwest Murders Episode 2 starts with the traffic stop of Arnie's car by the Illinois State Police on the same day Arnie was murdered. The occupants of Arnie's car, William Thompson and Yusuf Brown, fled from the trooper and they drove about 25 miles until they pulled into Ryan Riddle's farmhouse just southwest of Villagrove, Illinois. There, they tied up Ryan Riddle and two of his friends before leaving Arnie Graves' car at the farmhouse with one of Ryan's friends tied up in the trunk. As they fled from the scene of the home invasion in Ryan's truck and his female friend's van, they crossed paths with Douglas County Chief Deputy Tommy Martin, who was shot in the face and his chest. They abandoned Ryan's truck in the country and then both got into the van. During the subsequent high-speed chase, shots were fired at officers before the van crashed. One of them ran into a nearby bank and held hostages for hours. William Thompson and Yusuf Brown, who are brothers, were both finally taken into custody after the day-long crime spree. Chief Deputy Tommy Martin died from his injuries about a month later. Ryan Riddle and two of his friends had escaped with their lives. The two suspects, William and Yusuf, who tied them up, were both armed with handguns and pointed their guns at them repeatedly. The suspects arrived in a vehicle that belonged to a man who had been murdered brutally just hours before. Ryan survived this home invasion. However, in about seven months, he and his best friend, Mark Prossy, would not be so fortunate. This third episode of Midwest Murders focuses on the unsolved double murders of Ryan Riddle and Mark Crossy. Don Coyne Trimble is our guest host during this Midwest murder series. 
Don and I have worked together on Crime Stoppers at the local, state, and national level. Don is also on the Crime Stoppers International Board. Ryan Riddle grew up in a multi-generational farm family in the Villa Grove area. The Riddle family and the Burris family teamed up and created Riddle Burris Farms, a large farming operation in Douglas County, Illinois. Ryan's parents, Jim and Juanita, divorced when Ryan was around five years old, and both parents ended up remarrying. Jim Riddle married Karen, and Juanita married Terry Romine. Ryan grew up learning the farming operation from his dad, Jim, and graduated from high school in 1994. Mark Prossy grew up in the Wellington Hoopston area in Illinois and graduated from high school in 1993, just a year earlier than Ryan. Mark and Ryan met each other while attending the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Mark and Ryan became the very best of friends. Ryan's stepdad, Terry Romine, remembered the first time Ryan brought Mark to Terry and Juanita's house and introduced them. Mark was so funny. The first time Ryan brought him home, he just, he was just jolly all the time and had a big bag in his hand and told my wife, hello, mom, there's my laundry. I like to cook and, and he was such a big guy, I could cook an eight pound roast on the grill or something and he would get most of it. Ryan's stepmom, Karen, has a daughter named Sarintha Nelson, who is Ryan's stepsister. Sarintha got to know Mark pretty well through her brother, Ryan. He met Mark in, uh, in school at the U of I. I think that's where they first met. And he became roommates with him and a couple other guys from Villa Grove. And I remember Mark. I mean, I knew Mark probably as well as most people. Mark was not a small person by any means. Um, I always called him a, the, the big teddy bear because he was a big boy. I mean, he was probably 6'5". I'm not really sure how tall he was, but, and he was heavy set, but he was just so lovable and caring. And he was funny too. He used to smoke cigarettes. And I always say, now, Mark, you know, those are going to stunt your growth. And he'd go, you think this is going to stunt this? <laughs> so they roomed together at school. And then once school was over, Ryan built a uh, modular home out in the country. And they lived together. Like Mark lived in the basement. Ryan lived upstairs. And they were best buddies forever. And Mark was the same as Ryan. Everybody loved Mark. Mark was funny. Mark was not involved in anything sinister. Neither was Ryan. I mean, very social. Both of them were very, very social. There was a place out south of town called the Douglas County Social Club. And literally, um, they had their own bar stools because that's how social they were. I mean, they, if they weren't around people, then I always said, you know, if, if Ryan weren't surrounded by people, I think that he would, you know, wither up and die because he just loved people, loved to be social. And he was, he was so, I mean, he was just funny. They both were very funny. They kind of like thrived on each other's humor. Everybody loved him. Like I said, they had no enemies, either of them. Rich Osborne was a childhood friend of Ryan's. Rich is one of several people who spoke of Ryan's true and absolute love of farming and how much Ryan and Mark like drinking beer. Ryan was a very laid back, easygoing type of guy, uh, loved farming. Uh, he did enjoy the occasional Bud Light and uh, we had a few of those together, but uh, Ryan didn't, you know, Ryan didn't have enemies. Ryan was just, he didn't know a stranger, didn't matter where we went whether it was a, a road trip out of town or around the central Illinois area, Ryan would talk to everybody. He had a smile that lit up the room. So Mark had a similar personality as far as being laid back, but 
bit more of a, a dry comedian. He definitely enjoyed telling stories. And I actually met Mark at the U of I. We were both engineers together studying there. And Mark was one of those guys, extremely smart, but he didn't always want everybody to uh, necessarily know that. He, he kind of laid back a little bit. We also spoke with their family friend, Lante. In addition to being a farmer, Ryan's dad, Jim, was also the area basketball coach. And Jim coached Lon in junior high and high school. Lon was a bit older than Ryan, and Lon actually ended up coaching Ryan in Little League. When Ryan grew up, he and Lon started hanging out together. Wonderful people, comedians, guys that were always kind of the life of the party, boisterous, especially on Mark. When you'd show up, he was the first one to say hi, the loudest one to say hi. And, uh, and of course, Ryan was the same way. Ryan was a little bit quieter, but certainly those guys were just super, super fun guys. They were just guys that would do anything for you. And that's basically what they were, just good salt-of-the-earth guys here in central Illinois. So we basically heard the same story from everyone we spoke with. Ryan and Mark were best buds who loved to hang out have a good time and drink beer together. After Ryan and Mark started living together, Ryan ended up going to a wedding where he met Amy. She told us how their relationship started. I was, what is that, 25, I think. Um, it was 2002 and we actually met at a wedding. Lots of oh. mutual friends. I was friends with the bride, he was friends with both of them. And so we met at the wedding. He was super funny, um, just very funny. Everything was easy with him. Um, just very easygoing, would just sit down and talk to anybody, um, and we had a good time from day one. Um, we started dating pretty much right off the bat after that wedding, and then um, probably for a year, year and a half, and then finally I moved to Villa Grove um, and moved in with him and Mark. In 2005, Ryan's dad, Jim, passed away, and Ryan inherited the Riddle portion of Riddle Burris Farms. Ryan's portion of the inheritance was worth several million dollars. Ryan was now very wealthy. Ryan continued to live at the same house in the country after his father's death. Since Amy lived with Ryan and Mark, she also got to know Mark very well. Mark was a lot like Ryan. Um, you know, they were both very easygoing and very, um, you know, they were both very funny and they were both pretty laid back. I would say Mark wasn't as laid back as Ryan. He, you know, he was particular in the way he liked his stuff and the way he wanted things done. And that was a difference. But he was not difficult, to, you know, by any means. We all three got along really, really well for several years, three years, maybe when we all lived there together, two or three years. So, you know, the two of them together were quite the dynamic duo. You know, it was always laughs and, and you know, fun and, and you know, light and easy. In early 2006, Mark decided to move out from Ryan's farmhouse. He bought a house in the middle of the country near Christman, Illinois. Ryan's stepmom, Karen, believes that there was some stress between Amy and Mark, which caused Mark to move out. It's the kind of stress that sometimes occurs when single friends live with a couple. Amy and Mark didn't always get along. Amy would get aggravated at some of the things Mark did and Mark would kind of get aggravated at some of the things Amy did and I think that was part of the reason that Mark decided to move out and get that house at Christmas because there was some tension there. Ryan and Amy were a couple and then like Mark was the third wheel although it didn't strain Ryan and Mark's relationship at all. Just for the situation I think Mark thought it best that he find somewhere else to live. 
Amy said that Ryan and Mark still found time to see each other often after Mark moved out. I bet they probably saw each other still at least maybe once a week. Um, Mark would come back to the farm, especially during, you know, planting and harvest and come help. And so I would say probably at least a once, once a week, maybe on average. In December 2006, Amy and Ryan broke up and Amy moved out. Since Mark had already moved into his own place, Ryan was now living by himself. About six months after Amy and Ryan broke up, Ryan and his two friends were tied up in the home invasion that occurred on June 21, 2007. This crime spree was really big news around central Illinois since a police officer was killed and numerous people were held hostage at a bank for hours. Amy told us how she found out that Ryan was one of the victims of this crime spree. I, I worked at the university at that time and I was at work and I actually had another friend reach out to me and ask me if I knew what was going on and I had no idea. I you know, kept tabs on it throughout the day. And then finally in the afternoon, probably, I don't know, like four or something maybe, I spoke with Ryan himself and, you know, he asked me to come down to Villa Grove and just, you know, be, be around. And so I did. And um, we were back together pretty much that day. So according to Amy, the time apart during their breakup helped them figure out what they wanted. The home invasion definitely made an impact on their lives and gave them direction. It was pretty immediate. Um, you know, we, we found out we were pregnant shortly after that. And then, you know, just taking the steps forward. So. We got married in August, August 10th, 2007. After they got married, they settled into a normal routine as they prepared for the birth of their child. Um, I mean, you know, we both had jobs. So, you know, he would go to the farm or, you know, which was just down the road from us. It was only like a quarter of a mile away um, and do whatever needed to be done, whether they were in the fields or if it was off, you know, off season where it wasn't harvest or planting, they would, you know, do the repairs or maintenance or whatever they needed to. Um, and I was working at the university full time. So, um, you know, we were gone um, during the day and then we'd come back home and, you know, it was it was dinner and, you know, just chilling at home, hanging out, watching TV, whatever. The weekend of January 26, 2008, Ryan and Amy went to Wisconsin to see his stepsister, Sorintha, her husband, their young son and other family members. Sorintha's boy was about to turn one and the family got together to celebrate. Ryan and Amy returned home on Sunday evening, January 27th. Unfortunately, tomorrow would change everything. Monday, January 28th, 2008 was just another day. Amy was now about seven months pregnant. She told us that she went to work and Ryan was busy at the farm. It was just a normal day. I'll never forget, it was super windy on that day. Um, and I went to work and Ryan had went to work and I was coming home and I had stopped and washed my car after work in Villa Grove and then I came home. That early evening, Mark went to a regularly scheduled meeting in Tuscola. Their friend, Lon, was also going to these meetings. When the meeting on this particular night was over, Lon and another person attending the meeting ended up taking Mark to Ryan's farmhouse. So that night, um, I brought them back and it was actually my last meeting. I think they each had one or two left. So I pulled up, uh, the three of us pulled up into uh, Ryan's driveway and Mark got out. You know, we said our goodbyes and he went inside. I never did see Ryan that day, but that was uh, the deal with me and Mark that I had dropped him off at Ryan. Amy confirmed that someone dropped Mark off at her and Ryan's house. 
In what has been described to us by several people as unusual, Ryan ended up driving Amy's car to take Mark home to Christman that night. Ryan was almost always seen driving his truck, so taking Amy's car was out of the ordinary. Amy stated that Ryan took her car that night because it was super windy. So I was home, um, and then the other friend dropped him back off at our house in the evening after the class at like seven o'clock, quarter till seven, and Ryan was taking him home, Mark home to Christman. And he took my car um, because it was really windy that night and he just was afraid his truck was going to get blown around. And I, you know, I'm like, that's fine, whatever. That's, I'll never forget that part of the day that it was windy and I don't know why that sticks out, but it does. And so they left right at seven. I was going to throw a frozen pizza in the oven for dinner and it would have been ready by the time he was home. And then an hour went by um, and he was getting to the time that he should be home and I never heard anything. Um, and that's probably why the wind sticks out to me so much is because my first instinct was maybe they were in a car accident because of the wind. Amy told us that Mark had been going to these Monday night meetings for about a month or a little more. She said that it was routine for Ryan to both pick Mark up after work and take him to the early evening meetings in Tuscola, as well as drop Mark back off at home in Christmas afterwards. For most part, on any normal week, he would pick Mark up and take him to class and then grab him from class and then take him back home. But this particular week, another friend had to go to the same class. So he took Mark to class, but then dropped Mark off at our house after class so Ryan could take Mark home. I think it was about an hour round trip to take Mark home. And so about eight o'clock, um, you know, he wasn't back and I was starting to just get a little curious, like, you know, did they stop somewhere or, you know, what happened? And um, I tried calling both of them and, and it went to, you know, they didn't answer. Um, I don't recall if it went straight to voicemail or not at this point. And so, you know, I just called a few times between about eight and nine. And then at nine o'clock, I was really worried at that point. It, it would have been two hours, then he should have been home. At this point, Amy was concerned. So she called her mom and Ryan's stepmom, Karen, and told them that Ryan was driving Mark home, but that she couldn't reach Ryan or Mark. Um, so I called my uh, mother-in-law, Karen, and, you know, asked if she had heard anything, um, this and that. I also called my mother, um, you know, kind of for advice. Um, and so I think it was about 10 o'clock. I had spoke with Karen and she came over. Um, and at that point we started calling, you know, the, the county, the county police to see if, um, you know, there had been an accident reported or anything like that. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Um, you know, we, you know, they, they didn't know anything, nobody knew anything. And I think it maybe was around the same time, 10, 1030, somewhere through there, 11. Um, we had requested that they do a welfare check out to Mark's house. Um, and at that point, the answer started changing. Um, we can't tell you anything, you know, we don't, we can't say anything at this point. And then of course, your mind just spirals, um, just spirals. It, it, you don't know what to think, you know, something bad has happened, but you don't know what has happened, you know. Um, and so eventually, I don't, it might have been about one o'clock, my mom came down and me and my mom and Karen, and um, I'm, you know, I'm seven months pregnant at this point also yeah. um, to, you know, just make everything a little more difficult. Um, so my mom was down and Karen was down and Karen was very diligent about calling like almost every hour, um, trying to see if she could get some answers. Uh, and the response was the same, you know, we can't tell you anything. Once Ryan's stepmom, Karen arrived at the house, she took over calling the police to find out if they had learned anything about what was going on with Ryan and Mark. 
So I went out there. I was probably there by 10, 15. So once I got there, I tried Douglas County Police, Edgar County Police, and no reports of anything. So then I tried those counties again, and they said if they had any word, they'd call us. They didn't give us any answers. And then finally they said they had officers out there, they were investigating. And I said, well, tell me what's going on. And they really couldn't tell me much more. And I said, well, I'm going to drive out there if you won't tell me what's going on. Oh, they wouldn't advise that, ma'am. I said, what, you won't let me go to the house? They can't advise me to do that, ma'am. I said, then tell me what's going on. Uh, We can't tell you that, ma'am. But I called them later, and they asked me what Ryan was wearing. And Amy told me what clothes he was wearing. During all this time, we're just sitting there and waiting and crying and worrying and not knowing what to do. They told me I couldn't come over there. They wouldn't let me go up to the house. And during this time, Amy's crying, and she said, I know I'll never see him again. I just know I'll never see him again. So finally, about 5 o'clock, they called me and said, we have an officer on the way to see you. He should be there in 45 to 50 minutes. We apologize for the time that this has taken. At this point, Karen, Amy, and Amy's mom waited for officers. When they arrived, Karen saw that the Douglas County coroner was with them, and she knew they were delivering bad news. So about 4 or 6, it's just like in the in the movies when you see a, an officer come up to the door and take off his hat and hold it in both hands and knock on the door. And I knew who he was. It was Douglas County's Joe Victor. And when I saw him at the door with his hat in his hands and he told me. Once Amy saw Karen's reaction to those that had just shown up at the door, Amy knew that Ryan was gone. I think it was around six o'clock they walked in the door and the county coroner came with the sheriff and Karen knew the county coroner um, because she had been in Douglas County all her life. And she immediately broke down and we all knew what had, had that something that they were they were gone um, without them even saying anything. So um, I guess, you know, from, I guess, eight o'clock to six a.m., um, we really just didn't get a lot of answers and didn't know a whole lot. And, and um, finally, at six, we found out what was going on. So then what do you remember sort of finding out that day as the day went on? Obviously, they probably gave you more information. Yes, the state state police came over and talked to us. Uh, they talked to me downstairs, you know, away from everybody else, obviously, and just were asking me questions about if I knew where they had gone or what, you know, just, just the typical, I guess, questions that they would ask. Um, and they had told us that they were deceased, um, you know, that there was, they're not sure what had happened, but they had both been shot. You know, they did mention that it appears as if they, they put up a fight, Mark and Ryan, um, and that kind of gives you a little bit of solace, but not a lot. They didn't give me a lot of detail. Um, and actually, to this day, I really don't know much more um, than I did, you know, the day after when they came over and spoke to me. So there's um, a lot of things that just aren't there for any of us. Since Lon had taken Mark from the meeting in Tuscola to Ryan's house, 
police came that morning to ask him some questions as well. They came in and talked to me and asked me just a few questions about the details the night before. I remember him asking, you know, did did anything strange happen on the ride to Ryan's house? Did anybody follow you guys home? And I'm like, no, I mean, I took, you know, we took the country home. So I said, I don't remember anybody, you know, any cars being behind us or anything the whole way. We spoke with Rhett Burris, who is Ryan Riddle's business partner. Rhett and Ryan's father started Riddle Burris Farms. Rhett and Ryan were continuing the farming business together. Crimes of this type of violence are extremely rare where Ryan and Mark live. We asked Rhett how these murders immediately impacted their farming and small town community. Well, I know that within a week of this happening, of the murder happening that I had, my parents had alarm systems put on our homes because nobody knew why, how, what the reasoning was. So everybody was on edge. And I mean, it was, they just put everybody on edge. I mean, they, they were just, they were so likable. It just shocked people that it happened to them. I mean, it was shocking it happened to anybody in the community. But for those two that were so likable, so friendly, so outgoing, you know, for something like this to happen, it just, it shocked the community. Immediately after the murders, Amy went to live with Ryan's stepmom, Karen, until shortly after their son was born. The day after it happened, um, I went and stayed with my mother-in-law, Karen. Um, I just couldn't go back to the house. Um, you know, we had put the baby's room together and, you know, it was just hard. So I didn't go back. I stayed with Karen for a month. And then when he was born, um, and I went back to the house. But just the two of us. And it, it was fine. Um, you know, it, 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 I mean, it, it wasn't fine, but it was difficult um, because, you know, I was doing this alone where we had planned to do all this together. And, um, but we lived there for about three more months. And then I just felt the best decision for me and my son at that point was to move back to my hometown, um, closer to my support system, um, you know, my family and, and all my friends. And so... Um, you know, there was a lot of shuffling at that time, but, you know, we had to do what we had to do. The Illinois State Police have conducted a massive investigation during the last 13 years. In an interview with News Gazette reporter Mary Shank, agents from the Illinois State Police estimated that approximately 300 people have been interviewed about this case within the first several years of this happening. However, despite all of the hard work of the agents, this double homicide remains unsolved. I will tell you, some murders are extremely difficult to solve. You either have the witnesses and evidence that you need to successfully close the case, or you do not. Sometimes it is quite hard to close the gap from what you have and know to what you need to make an arrest and secure a conviction. Remember, the proof for conviction has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. From talking with a number of people for this podcast, it is clear that family and friends are absolutely confused and stunned as to why anyone would do this to Ryan and Mark. Several people we spoke with find it suspicious that the murders occurred at Mark's house in the middle of nowhere. Mark lived in the country in Chrisman, Illinois, about 30 miles from where Ryan lived near Villa Grove. Those we spoke with said it was hard to locate Mark's house when you were purposefully trying to find it. Amy put it like this. You need to know where you're going to find it. It was out in the country, off of a road, you know, off of a main highway it, that ended just past Mark's house. You know, there was no reason for, you know, just a random person to be down that road. I don't think, um, you know, it was it was tucked back. There was there was just nothing back there. 
that would draw anybody back there. So would it be your assumption that someone would have had to pick that house and known who was going to be there to be there yeah. to hurt them? I believe in my heart that whomever's responsible for this had some sort of affiliation with with somebody, with one of them, whether it be Mark or Ryan. Um, they had to know at least something about them. I don't think this was random by any means. Um, it's just too convenient. Um, you know, they were inside. Why would, you know, I just, it just doesn't make any sense to me to that it's just a random occurrence. Also, remember that Mark had been going to the same meeting every Monday evening for about a month to a month and a half, and Ryan was always the one to drive him back to Mark's house after the meeting. If someone wanted to ambush Mark or Mark and Ryan, they would absolutely know the general time on Monday evening that they would be returning from the meeting. Detectives do their best to keep an open mind while they are conducting an investigation. And while investigating, detectives are considering all of the possible motives and whether they potentially could apply to the case in question. Profit is one potential motive. Cops have seen people killed for a few dollars, let alone a few million dollars like Ryan had. I'm certain the Illinois State Police are examining anyone who could have gained or who believed they were going to gain from Ryan's or Mark's deaths. In fact, there are several people who did benefit. According to interviews and court documents, Amy and their son were given the majority of Ryan's multi-million dollar estate. However, there are other relatives and associates who immediately or eventually received much smaller portions of the proceeds. We also know of Mark's relatives who received part of his estate as well. So receiving any part of their estates could definitely be a potential motive for someone willing to murder. However, we all know that receiving money from an estate does not make you a murderer. There are several other possible motives we should examine. Revenge is another possible motive to consider. Police will always look for someone who may have been angry due to a perceived wrong when investigating homicide. However, no one we spoke with can imagine anyone being upset enough with Ryan or Mark to kill them. Mark was a supervisor for North American Lighting out of Paris, Illinois, which is about 15 miles from where he lived. The only possible guess that Amy had was that maybe Mark, being a supervisor, caused one of his employees to get angry with him. I mean, over the years, a million different scenarios have played through my mind of what possibly could be the reason that somebody would do this to people that didn't deserve it. Um, you know. I've played every single thing that I can come up with in my mind and nothing makes sense. Nothing makes sense. Um, the, the only thing that I have that keeps coming back to me is that Mark was a, um, a manager or supervisor or whatever down at a, um, a factory in Paris. That was his job. And he was involved in the hiring and firing of, of individuals and, you know, discipline and everything else. And the only thing that I keep coming back to is maybe somebody got disciplined or let go at the plant in the factory and they didn't take it well um, and they ambushed them. I don't know. I really, really don't know. Um, and that's a daily struggle, not having any sort of answer or any sort of idea what in the world could have happened that day. Ryan's old farming business partner, Rhett Burris, also mentioned Mark's supervisory responsibility as a possible reason for the murders. Mark always spoke his mind, so he could have made somebody angry. Uh, Mark was a very, very smart person, and I'm sure he did his job to the T. So if somebody, you know, at work tried to get around one of the safety regulations or whatever, I'm sure Mark was 
on top of it. He took pride in his job and he took it seriously. But yes, it's highly possible that something's going to happen at his work. Everything's up in the air, so nobody knows for sure what happened. Their old friend, Lon Tay, could not think of anyone who would want to kill them. Lon's only guess is that maybe someone at work became angry with Mark. You know, when this all happened, I'm like, there's no way this involved Ryan. I, I you know, because of course I knew Mark well, but not as well as I knew Ryan. And if you would have walked in that day and said, well, this person wanted to get rid of Ryan, I would have been like, you got to be kidding me. I don't think he had an enemy. Uh, he was a fun guy. I could not let my mind go to the side of this had something to do with Ryan. I just couldn't. So I thought maybe Mark being, you know, a guy that was in charge of a lot of people at North American Lighting, I thought maybe did he fire somebody? Did somebody have a beef with Mark? So I thought, well, maybe somebody had an issue with Mark and Ryan just happened to be in the in the wrong spot at the wrong time. You know, Mark lived. It's just such a kind of a hidden place anyway. I'm like, maybe somebody from that area uh, knew, you know, knew where he lived and, and they had a beef with him. And that's what happened. It never will cross my mind to the day I die that somebody would have had a beef with those two guys, that they would have done that. I just. You'll never convince me that that would be the case, that it, that this was a personal thing. I just can't imagine somebody not liking those two guys or hating those guys enough to the point of doing so. Well, I can't imagine doing that anyway, but, you know, I, I just can't. Georgiana Reed also worked at North American Lighting, and Mark was her boss for about five years until his death. Georgiana told us that Mark was the quality manager for the Paris plant who supervised a small number of employees. However, the area he supervised impacted the entire Paris, Illinois facility since they were in charge of quality. Georgiana told us that Mark was extremely well-respected and reported directly to the corporate office. We asked her what kind of a boss and fellow employee Mark was. Oh my goodness. Well, he's probably one of the best managers I've ever worked for. Uh, he's smart, funny. Oh my goodness. Um, very professional, but he was pretty laid back. So. If you wanted to learn something, he would teach you without being condescending or arrogant. Um, he didn't show an ego. He was confident, but he never made you feel dumb when he was explaining something to you, which was very much appreciated for most of us that had not worked in manufacturing. He always seemed to be there, um, but he was so nice. Everybody liked him, but he was just easy to talk to. He was a jokester. Spending time talking to him, he'd be laughing. He just was such a nice guy. Who would want to shoot someone that he could, good grief. He'd give you the shirt off his back. He was, I can't imagine anybody disliking him that much. Georgiana did not know of any possible enemies that Mark had at work or in his personal life. And there's a good chance that she probably would have known this since she worked so close with Mark for his last five years. Other possible motives for murder include robbery or a burglary interrupted. Some people are killed when suspects are taking money or other things of value directly from them. You know, like the typical stick up, like when a suspect pulls a gun and points it at someone and demands their wallet. In Illinois, that is called armed robbery. Police have also worked murders where burglaries are interrupted. This means that a suspect was in the middle of breaking into a home and stealing items when the homeowner returned unexpectedly and then the suspect kills the homeowner. 
in that interview with the News Gazette reporter Mary Shank, the Illinois State Police stated that they did not think that this was a robbery or a burglar interrupted. An Illinois State Police command officer stated in this interview that police believe that the murders of Ryan and Mark were not random. In fact, the command officer stated that police believed that Ryan and Mark were specifically targeted. Some people will kill a person because they are jealous of a relationship that potential victim has with someone the killer wants as their own. Instead of trying to win the desired mate over, you just eliminate the competition. So we asked Amy if there was anyone that Ryan was dating while they were broken up or while they were married that could have done this. Amy did not think that Ryan dated anyone while they were broken up or while they were married. So we asked Amy the same question about anyone she may have dated. Um, you know, I had dated some people that probably weren't the best people to date, but I just, I, I, I just can't put that together. I just don't think that anybody would go that far. Um, I, I just, I just don't see it. Um, yeah, I just don't see that as a possibility. And then, um, did Mark have a girlfriend? As far as I know, it was slowly rekindling with like a high school flame, but I don't know, you know, where they were in the process of all that. Um, gotcha. It was, I, I don't know if it was new. I, I, you know, as far as I knew, he was single, um, but I think that they were working on putting something together. Other people we spoke with also brought up that Mark was possibly starting to date an old girlfriend from the Hoopson area. From what we learned, it sounded like a girlfriend he dated while in high school. They may have been just starting to see each other before he was killed. We reached out to this woman we believe is Mark's old girlfriend. She responded, quote, thank you for the email invitation. However, I must decline to comment on this ongoing investigation, end quote. So we do not have any further information on this possible relationship. We are not releasing her name due to privacy concerns. One of the big questions that always gets brought up in unsolved murders is whether the victims were involved in any kind of criminality, like drugs or drug dealing, that could have led to their deaths. So we asked Amy about this. No, not at all. Not at all. Really? I've never seen any either one of them do uh, any kind of drug in my entire life. The whole time I've known either one of them. And were they involved in any kind of drug dealing? No, absolutely not. Was there anything shady or illegal about what they were doing? No, not at all. Not at all. These boys, you know, the only thing they did was drink, you know, it, and, you know, sometimes they were really good at it, but that didn't, you know, there was nothing illegal about that. Um, they, you know, I lived with the boys for, what, four years together? And never in the four years that we all lived together did I see either of them do anything other than just have a beer, you know. There, there's nothing shady. There's nothing dark going on with the two of them. Lon felt strongly that neither of them were involved in anything related to drugs. It would shock me as much as I found out that they were uh, deceased if you told me that those two were on drugs, Mark and Ryan. Now, if you told me they drank a hell of a lot of beer, yes, I would, I would agree with that. I've done tons of that with them. If you told me that either one of those guys had anything to do with drugs, I would tell you just flat out, Either you're a liar or I am so naive that I have no idea that they were doing it. Some of the sources we spoke with believe that Ryan and Mark absolutely hated drugs and would have never been involved in doing them or selling them. Also, Amy could not think of anyone she was connected to at the time who was involved in any type of criminality that would have led to Ryan and Mark being murdered. There are some who wonder if the home invasion that Ryan was a victim of seven months before he was killed had anything to do with his murder. 
The reason why people have to at least ask this question is because violent crime like home invasions and murder are so rare in the part of the country where Ryan and Mark lived. The chances that Ryan could have been the victim of a home invasion and the victim of murder seven months apart seem almost unbelievable. However, in that same interview with News Gazette reporter Mary Shank, the Illinois State Police Command Officer who declared that police believed that Ryan and Mark had been targeted also stated that police do not think the home invasion was anything other than coincidence. Basically, my interpretation is that the police said it was just really horrible luck. It also makes more sense to me that it was just random chance. Why do I believe this? Well, Ryan was the common person in both crimes, and it seems extremely unlikely that he would have been killed 30 miles from his home at Mark's place in the middle of the country along with Mark. How and why with two suspects from Chicago driving a car that belonged to a murder victim and fleeing from the Illinois State Police end up at Ryan's and not kill him during that home invasion. But then seven months later, associates of theirs kill Ryan at Mark's house. It just doesn't seem likely that these two crimes are related at all. Also, Ryan thought it was just bad luck that William and Yusuf ended up at his farmhouse near Villa Grove after they fled from the Illinois State Police. Rich Osborne remembers talking with Ryan about this home invasion. I remember we had an in-depth conversation over in Peoria, Illinois about it. And I, I just asked him, I said, Ryan, how do you stay in that house? I mean, it had to be traumatic. I'm not sure I could go to sleep in that. And, you know, he just, he, that same smile, I'll never forget. And uh, he said that was a once in a lifetime random occurrence. He goes, I'm not going to live in fear. He goes, I just, he goes, it's my house. I'm going to keep living there. He goes, I'm not worried. And that was just his attitude about it. Here is a quick overview of what we know so far. On Monday, January 28, 2008, Lante was at an early evening meeting in Tuscola, Illinois with Mark Prossi. After the meeting, Lon took Mark to Ryan Riddle's farmhouse near Villa Grove and got there about 7 p.m. This was their routine because Ryan would then always take Mark home to Christman after these Monday meetings. This had been going on for the previous month to a month and a half. According to Amy, Ryan used Amy's car that night because it was very windy and Ryan's truck would have been tossed around by the wind. Ryan's friends and family describe it as extremely unusual for Ryan not to take his truck. Ryan left with Mark shortly after 7 p.m. When Ryan did not return by about 8 p.m., Amy tried to call both of them, but neither of them answered their phones. Amy was concerned and called Ryan's stepmom, Karen, and her mom. Karen arrived at Amy and Ryan's farmhouse at about 10 p.m. Karen then called the Edgar County Sheriff's Office at about 10.20 p.m. and asked them to do a welfare check at Mark's house. Police went there and found them murdered. Amy's car was still at the house. There has been very little information publicly released by the Illinois State Police on this investigation. Police do this so that only the cops and the killers know what happened at the scene. News Gazette reporter Carol Varell interviewed the lead state police agent in 2018 for the newspaper's podcast episode on this case. The lead agent stated that as Ryan was taking Mark home that night, that they stopped along the way at the J&T One Stop store in Newman at about 7.20 p.m. Sometime shortly after 10.30 p.m., police found them shot to death. They were found inside on the floor, but police would not release which room their bodies were. Also, police could not find any sign of forced entry. However, according to those that knew Mark, 
he routinely did not lock his house. Police have not released what type or caliber of weapon or weapons they believe were used to kill them. According to the News Gazette reporter Varel, police did not find any weapons at the scene. Police do not believe that this was a robbery or a burglary interrupted or that it was just a random act. Police believe that Ryan and Mark were specifically targeted. Police think that the home invasion that Ryan was the victim of seven months before was just a coincidence and not related to their murders at all. Please continue to listen for an important update to this investigation coming near the end of this episode. From talking with friends and family of Ryan and Mark, it is clear that it was a traumatic event for all of those who loved them to have them unexpectedly killed. Remember, Amy was seven months pregnant when Ryan was murdered 13 years ago. Amy was able to find the right time to tell their son about what happened to his dad. He is only known for, let's see, I would say maybe two so years. I I kept him sheltered from it because, you know, that's not something a little boy needs to know, um, quite frankly. And he asked me a lot of times, I mean, all the time, you know, what happened to my dad? And I, to the best of my ability, tried to just tell him that, um, you know, his dad passed away and we didn't know what happened, which is the truth in a roundabout way. Um, You know, and then the questions just got more detailed from him. You know, was he sick? Did he have cancer? Did something bad happen to him? And um, <laughs> this is kind of weird how it all came out. It was one night I was watching a Dateline <laughs> um, and he had come in and just seen parts of it or whatever. And uh, on the commercial break, he asked me, he's like, was my dad murdered? And I uh, had to take every ounce of strength I had in my body to not lose it um, in there. And I, and I said, buddy, I said, give me a minute and we'll talk about it. So I went outside and lost it um, and I just sobbed um, because, you know, where does that come from? And I think it was just for him, he had guessed every other thing and there was nothing there. You know, I didn't have answers and that show must have just brought something up for him. And so once I got myself composed, I sat him down and I told him what happened. And then we cried together for a long time. You know, I just stressed to him that his father and Mark were great people and something really bad happened to them. Um, And we don't really know why. Um, Maybe someday we will, but right now we don't. And I didn't have very many answers for him. So, um, and the reason I decided to tell him when he he asked that question blankly, because he was, what, 10 years old, almost 11 years old. And it was going to be time that he was going to find it out on the internet. You know, he was going to Google his dad. And I didn't want him to find out that way. I wanted to be the one in control of how he found out and what he found out. so, you know, there there were a lot of talks in between then and there. And shortly after, I think maybe it was after the first of the year or something, we went down to visit Illinois and um, went out to his dad's gravesite and, you know, um, just just the two of us and, and Karen, his, his grandma, and uh, just took it all in. And it was a hard day. You know, he, he still asks a lot of questions, but his main thing is, I wish we could find out who did this. And, you know, the only thing I can say is I do too. Um, you know, it's been a long time. It, it's, you know, it, it, it will be one of those days that if, if and when this ever comes to fruition, I, I think that we might find out who did it, but I just, in my gut, don't think we'll ever know why. Um, you know, I, I just don't um, because there is no good reason why, um, you know, 
nobody needed to hurt them for any reason. They did nothing to anybody. They, you know, they were good people. Um, they weren't into anything bad. You know, it, they, they were just wholesome, small town Midwest boys. And, and so um, that's the hardest thing for me. And my son is not having the answers that he deserves that, you know, it, it's, it's not even about me anymore. It's about him. How has this murder impacted you? Like, how has this impacted your life? It, I mean, in every single way. Um, you know, you, you it's just the way you live life changes. You know, there's this huge hole. Um, and especially with a son that doesn't, you know, that never met his dad and you don't have answers for him. Um, you know, as I said, I started, you know, living my life for my son and, you know, making sure that, that was my number one priority. You know, you go from a mind frame of having a family and a husband and a wife raising, raising a child together to all of a sudden being a widow with a, an infant, um, you know, and not even in the immediate thereafter, but, you know, even years later, like now, you know, you still have that hole. It's still there. Um, uh, your your life is just incomplete because you have no resolution. You have no peace. You have no answers. It, it's hard to describe, quite frankly. You know, your entire world changes in the blink of an eye and you have to figure out how to put it back together um, as best you can. In ways, it's changed for the better um, because you learn to live like every moment's your last. You know, you don't let people walk out the door without saying, I love you. Goodbye. That's one, I guess, not benefit, but, you know, positive that changes because you learn how to keep your relationship solid. But in, in other ways, you're always looking over your shoulder. Um, you know, the worst thing always comes to your mind if somebody's late or, you know, you know, you just keep a, a vigilant watch on those around you because you never know what's going to happen again. Uh, it's it's difficult. It, it really is difficult to shake that. You know, I, I can't help but think, you know, immediately if somebody's not where they're supposed to be at the time they're supposed to be there, oh my God, what happened? You know, it, it you immediately go to the worst case scenario, or at least, you know, that's I, and that still is the case 13 years later. We also asked Amy if she had a message for anyone who has information on this case. I, you know, my plea would just be, please do the right thing. Um, you know, whether it be something small that you think is insignificant, um, it could be huge to this case. Please just come forward, um, you know, do it anonymously. Um, just any information you think you might have could break this case wide open and finally give everybody that's involved the justice and the peace that they deserve. Um, these, these boys deserve to rest in peace and whomever did this deserves to pay for it. And, you know, just please, please come forward. Yeah, you know, it, it's just, it's time. It's time. We spoke with Terry Romine, Ryan's stepdad, when we began preparing for this podcast many months ago. Terry is extremely passionate about finding who is responsible for killing his son and his son's best friend. Terry has gathered every note, document, and report he could find on this case and provided them to us. Terry will not rest until every person responsible for these senseless murders are brought to justice. Before Juanita, Ryan's mom, died, Terry promised her that he would not stop trying to find who did this. Broke, broke my wife's heart. I think that's why she died. That's why um, she made me promise to keep working on it. Terry is angry and heartsick that Ryan is gone. Terry wasn't just his dad. They were super tight. Ryan told Juanita that I wasn't his stepdad, I was his best friend. 
Terry is begging for anyone with information to please come forward. Every little bit of information helps, even though you don't think it's important. You have to open up each door. Even though you don't know there's nothing behind that door, you have to open it and check on it. So any information you've got, you've got to share. We have some exciting and original reporting from True Crime Takedown to give you about this investigation. This reporting was confirmed from a number of sources. Here it is. The Illinois State Police Zone 5 has created a special investigations unit that's been focused on this unsolved double murder for months. There are about five agents assigned to this unit, and our understanding is that they are well-trained and motivated officers. This unit is carefully reviewing all of the evidence collected and the original reports filed by the officers who first responded to the crime scene and conducted the investigation in the earlier years. These agents are doing numerous interviews. Some of these interviews are with people who were spoken with years ago, and some are new. We are also aware the agents have collected DNA samples from some of those they've spoken with. Based on what we are hearing, this special investigations unit will not stop until every lead has been followed up on. Everyone involved in the murders of Ryan and Mark should be extremely nervous. This unit is looking under every rock and they are on the move. I think it is really good news that they are collecting DNA samples. Usually, police only collect samples when they have something to compare them to. Based on them collecting samples, maybe they have a DNA profile that was left at the scene by the killers that they found from re-examining original evidence with new, more powerful DNA technology. This is our hope. The efforts of this unit are really good news for Ryan's and Mark's loved ones. Friends and family raised a $25,000 reward for information that leads to the arrests and the convictions for those responsible for these murders. If you have any information, you can call the Illinois State Police directly at 217-278-5004. The Wabash Valley Crime Stoppers will pay an additional up to $1,000 for anonymous tips to their program. By phone, that's 812-238-7867 or by the P3 Tips app or through their website at wvcrimestoppers.org. You can trust Crime Stoppers to keep you anonymous. Crime Stoppers has kept the identity of millions of tipsters secret for over 40 years. Thanks for listening. You can help us fight crime by joining the True Crime Takedown team through Patreon. You can join the Takedown team by going to truecrimetakedown.com team. Our Patreon Takedown team members get exclusive episodes, audio extras, bonus content, and much more. Pictures and sources for this podcast can be found on our website. Please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at True Crime Takedown. Our theme music, The Takedown, is by Mitch Marlowe. We'll be back with a new episode soon. True Crime Takedown is a production of Crime Fighters Media.